about who you are, what it teaches us about what you expect from us as your children, as followers of Jesus. And we just pray, Lord, that today you would, by your spirit, graciously teach us the truth that you want us to know. Thank you that you are building your church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That although we see darkness on the move, we see your light shining more brightly than ever. Thank you that your kingdom is a kingdom that is unshakable. That you've given us access to your kingdom through Jesus Christ. That we can come to you boldly and we can call you Father. Thank you that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who do not need repentance. And thank you that you have washed us in the blood of Jesus and translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of your dear Son. And we pray, Lord, that today as we listen to your word, as we soak ourselves in your word, that we would become more like Jesus in character. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness in working in us, both to will and to do your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been working our way through Peter's first letter. Uh, to the Christians who were scattered throughout what is now Turkey. This is our fourth week in the study, and we've seen how Peter laid a foundation of hope uh, in salvation for believers who were facing or were about to face extreme opposition to their faith in Jesus. They were discovering that following Jesus comes sometimes at a high cost. And Peter was encouraging them, the believers, to, to fixate not on their trials, not on the problems they were facing, but on the outcome of their faith. He tells them to not only endure trials, but to expect them, since Christ also suffered, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Along with the foundation of hope in the gospel, he gives them practical instructions for how to live in the face of opposition, how to show the power of the gospel through our conduct. We finished last Sunday with uh, verses 11 and 12 in chapter 2, and this leads into the section that follows it. We're going to read from verse 13 in chapter 2 through verse 12 in chapter 3. Hopefully cover a little more ground today than we have in the past. Verse 13, chapter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, all of you having unity, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he starts off here with instructions to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors, sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Uh, now, every human institution is a pretty broad, um, all-encompassing term. So at creation, God gave man jurisdiction or authority to rule the earth, a sphere of dominion. He told man, after he created man and woman, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Within that sphere of dominion have arisen governments, nations, kings, legal systems, social structures, social orders that restrain evil and promote, promote the well-being of mankind. Now, I know that we live in a time where there's probably more tension between the church and government than what we've seen before, in, at least in our lifetime. And so I think that, that this is a tension that we should talk about and explore and see what does God expect from us as his, his church as we live sometimes caught between the tension of the kingdom of Christ, which we ultimately serve, and, and the kingdoms of this world, which we live among. That, that order that God established at creation still exists. There are nations, kings, presidents, um, legal systems, social orders that, that we live among. Or to governors, so whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Here we have the biblical pattern for what government, earthly government is for. It's to punish those who do evil 
and to praise those who do good. This is precisely in line with what Romans 13 says um, with respect to earthly authorities. In fact, I think that, that Peter was living in Rome when he wrote this letter, and it, there's a good possibility that he had, had interacted at least with the letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church about 10 years prior to this. Romans 13 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. I think it's imperative that we read both of these passages in the context in which they were given, where God is saying there is a framework for earthly governments. This is what they're supposed to do. And we know, realistically, that's not always what government does. In fact, we see, um, increasingly, we see cases where government, earthly governments, are abusing their authorities. And it highlights the fact that sometimes we're caught between the need to respect and honor earthly governments and the need to, for our allegiance, our primary allegiance to be for the kingdom of Christ. I would say this, the more closely that an earthly government is functioning within its God-given role, the less it will interfere with the kingdom of Christ and the pursuits of Christ followers. Because its God-given role is to restrain evil and promote good, to reward good, right? That's what God says it's for. In restraining evil and promoting good, it will lead to a peaceable environment where the gospel can, can be propagated, where the church can grow and flourish. And that's not to say that the church's growth is limited to when earthly government is functioning within its God-ordained role. In fact, we see lots of cases where the church flourishes in spite of intense persecution. However, it's God's will for us to pray toward this. Uh, 1 Timothy 2 says, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified In every way. That's the whole point. That's the point of praying for kings and governments, Congress, the Senate, your state governors. As you pray for them, pray toward this, that we may lead a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the purpose for earthly governments within the framework that God established for them is to create an environment where the gospel can flourish, where we can be at peace, living peaceful and quiet lives. And if there's any time 
at least in the history of our lifetime, that we should be praying into this. It's, it's now with what we see taking place around us. The primary function of earthly government is to is to protect peace and make space for godly, dignified living. The, the growth of the church, like I said before, is not limited to when this is happening. It's not limited to a, a peaceful environment, but it is promoted by that environment. The church's role is not necessarily to be the government, but it is to inform the earthly government of its God-given role. Where else are they going to get that truth? How else will earthly governments know what their responsibility is if the church does not inform them of that responsibility? Because we have the truth in the word of God. And it is our job to inform them of the truth. And when the church ceases to do that, to be salt and light, where else are they going to get salt and light? The word of God is the primary source of objective truth. And we are ministers of that truth to a world full of people who are walking in darkness. For this is the will of God, Peter says, that by doing good, you should put to silence the foolishness of ignorant people. I think this is a really important piece of the puzzle because he's not just saying that that government and society and the people around you are always going to be living like this, like like God ordained for them to live where they're restraining evil and promoting good. But you are going to be surrounded by ignorant and foolish people. This is what we encounter in real life situations. The reality is that we're surrounded by foolish people who who exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator, as it says in Romans. People who call right wrong and wrong right. Just a few years after Peter wrote this letter, the very government that he was instructing believers to honor was hunting down Christians coating them with tar, burning them like torches around the city of Rome. We have historical accounts of, of the, the province of Bithynia, where, which is one of the provinces that Peter addresses specifically at the beginning of this letter, where Christians were being summarily interrogated and executed if they did not renounce their faith in Jesus. And here Peter is telling them, honor that very government. Honor the emperor, honor governors as sent by the emperor to, to punish evil and reward good. So there's tension between the kingdom of Christ and the human institutions that we are asked to be subject to. And Peter says, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of those who deny the truth of God. And then verse 16, here's another key. And this is, I think, a key for this entire passage, not, not just for this section of how we relate to governors, but for how servants are supposed to relate to masters, how wives relate to their husbands, how husbands relate to their wives, and how all of us interact with each other. Here's the key. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. I'm going to read that again. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. You remember when when uh, Peter asked Jesus or someone asked Peter, uh, does your master pay taxes? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, I'm not actually sure about that. So he went and asked Jesus. And, and what did Jesus tell him? He said, from whom do the kings of the earth collect 
taxes or revenue? Is it, is it from children or from foreigners? And Peter was like, well, it's from foreigners. And then Jesus said, well, then the children are free. And I think what he was alluding to is the fact that the kingdom of Christ, along with those who serve him in it, will rightly possess the earth, inherit the earth, and we are to live free from other dictates outside of that kingdom. However, he follows this with instructions for Peter to go and, and, and catch a fish and, and get money and pay taxes, lest they be offended. So in one sense, we, we inherit the earth, we possess the earth, and we are, our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of Christ, therefore not primarily to, to the kingdoms that we live among and to earthly governments and social structures. And yet we have a responsibility to act, to interact with those structures and governments in a way that will put to silence the foolishness of ignorant people. I think this is really crucial to, to having a right perspective toward earthly governments. The earth belongs to Christ. And someday soon, all of us, who are, who are his people, will reign with him on the earth. But for now, the kingdoms of this world are given a role. They're given a role through which to maintain order until, until Christ comes to reign in person. If you have a clear understanding of this, of our temporary status as foreigners aliens, displaced citizens of another kingdom. That's what Peter was was getting at here. It, It will clarify your relationship with earthly structures and governments. So you live as people who are free. However, this freedom doesn't give us a cover up for evil. And I think that's where the abuse of living as people who are free often comes in. We see people who, who claim freedom in Christ and, and use it in an obnoxious way to make provision for their own desires rather than being servants of God. We live as people who are free because we are servants of God. We gladly submit ourselves to him because he's freed us from the power of sin, from our own passions, from the tyranny of the kingdom of darkness that had us enslaved. So he says, living as servants of God, that's how you live out your freedom. This is why we are subject to the the emperor as supreme. That's why we obey governors who are sent to punish evil and to reward good. It's why we honor everyone because we live as people who are free but not as in serving ourselves but serving god that's the key everything we do is because we're serving we do because we're servants of god it's both the source of our freedom the foundation of our freedom and it's the constraints the framework within which our freedom exists we serve god that's why he says be subject obey honor even, even systems and people who are outside of that framework of the, Christi- of, of the kingdom of God. Honor. Obey. Does that sound like freedom to you? I think it can only sound like freedom for us if we are living as servants of God. If, we, if we're aware that I don't belong to myself. This is not about my rights, my freedoms, my desires. It's about being a servant of God. 
we recognize that all authority is under God. That he's the one who gives authority to humans within social and governmental structures. So in being subject to human institutions, it's always within the constraints of God's ultimate authority. Anything that contradicts God's ultimate authority is not authority. Government doesn't have authority to tell us how to worship God. They don't have any authority in that jurisdiction because it's not authority that God has given them. They might try to take that, to take that authority, but they don't have it because God hasn't given them that authority. So there are, there are places in our lives where we answer directly to God. There are other places where God has given government authority. Maybe how fast you drive out here on this road, um, how much tax you pay at the end of the year. We, we might not like that. But it, it is jurisdiction that God has given to them. And he's saying live as people who are free, but as servants to God and recognize that the authority that, that government is exercising for the purpose of maintaining peace and order is all under the authority of God. And so you serve God, you obey, you are subject as servants of God primarily. Verse 17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. There are specific levels of honoring and love. It's not the same across all platforms. Social structures have their place. I think this is helpful in in balancing out uh, what James teaches about not showing partiality, about treating everyone the same. Everyone deserves honor by virtue of of being created in god's image however our relationship to some people to some sectors of society is going to be different from that of of other groups of people or or sectors of society for example our relationship to the church is unique the love that we experience among each other as saints as the people of god is unique to the love that we, that we feel for people who are not within the church. That's why he says specifically, love the brotherhood. There's, there's supposed to be a unique love that is shared among people who are redeemed. Um, I remember uh, during Bible Project in Honduras, uh, I got to meet a lot of people from a lot of different churches. And sometimes you would meet someone where there was just this instant connection in your spirit, and you knew this person knows God. They have a relationship with Him, and there's this bond that that isn't just a human connection, but it's there because of the Spirit of Christ in you and in that other person. That is the love that is shared by the Spirit. He says, "Honor the emperor." Now, he, told us, he just told us to honor everyone, right? He says, honor everyone. Now, he specifically says, honor the emperor. If the president of the United States would come to your house, you know, as much as you might dislike some of his policies or disagree with him on certain points, there would be a specific honor, a particular honor that is merited simply by, by virtue of his God-given role of authority. Not because you like what he does, or not because you like him as a person necessarily, but because you respect the role that God has given him. There's a particular honor that you show to people that are in authority. An an example of that is um, the way that David related to Saul. 
Can you think of a more dramatic example of a king who abused his authority, who, who used his God-given role for selfish purposes in a distorted and twisted way, hunting down David, trying to kill him just because of the jealousy that was in his own heart? And yet when David encountered him, he wouldn't do anything against him because he saw that there was an honor that was due to him by virtue of the anointing that God had placed on him as king, even though he was a wicked man. God wants us to show honor to people who are in authority, not because, not because we have a natural affinity for that, but because of the role that he has given them. Fear God. This is the, this is the center, the, the linchpin of all our honoring. We show honor best when we see people through the lens of their value given by God. When it's grounded on the fear of God and of their roles being ordained by God. So this leads us to the specific instructions that Peter gave to groups of people, the servants, wives, husbands. Not only do the roles of others have impact on the way we relate to them, but our God-given roles um, have implications for how we interact with others. He starts with servants in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Servants, live as people who are free, but don't use your freedom as a cover for evil. Rather, live as servants of God. That's the central message that he's giving to servants. Is you are ultimately serving God. We can see um, other examples of this in the New Testament. Of how that, even though the basis for eradicating slavery is found in New Testament principles, that was not the primary focus. The primary focus was how are you to live given your situation? Respect your masters because you are serving God. Not because their actions deserve respect. In fact, he explicitly tells them, be subject not only to the good and gentle, which might be easy, but also to the unjust. That's obviously not easy. And I think it's important for us to take a moment to look at popular social justice movements through this lens. This is one of the things that is so offensive about the gospel, is that it doesn't make our rights the supreme goal. In fact, our rights, our empowerment, our equality are far down on the list of priorities. It seems the emphasis is, has a lot more to do with regardless of what the unjust situation is that you find yourself in, live as a servant of God. You don't belong to yourself. Certainly God cares about justice, about the poor and about the oppressed. And one day every injustice will be righted when Christ comes and sets everything right. Which is why Romans tells us, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's that confidence that enables us to live as people who are free as we suffer injustice. In the place of our rights, our happiness, stands another supreme goal. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing 
When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. There it is with crystal clarity. The purpose of God. Through suffering, through injustice in our lives, it is a gracious thing when mindful of God. We endure the sorrows that come through unjust suffering. God must be at the center of all our suffering, of all the situations that seem unjust to us. And he says, make certain that your suffering is a result of righteous living, of good conduct, and not a result of our own sin. Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, one of the, I think we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, one of the, the arguments that are most, that's most frequently posited by skeptics is, how can a good God allow the suffering of innocent people? How can a good God allow the suffering of innocent people? Someone whose son was brain damaged in, a, in an accident said this, people often think that the reality of suffering is an embarrassment to the Christian faith. But I think suffering is the greatest apologetic for Christianity there is. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. If we suffer unjustly and endure it. See, Peter doesn't just want us to see suffering as a necessary evil. As an unintended consequence of sin and living in a fallen world. He wants you to see God's eternal purpose in suffering not just in spite of suffering but in suffering god could just as well have made a creation that never sinned that never had the fall and the curse and all the sorrow and suffering that followed it but his eternal purpose for glory not just for himself, but for those who believe in him required suffering. God created suffering so that he himself could step into it. Otherwise, he could never be seen for who he is. There's no way that you could see his patience, his humility, his unfairness fathomable love in giving himself in giving his only son as a sacrifice without suffering his eternal purpose and glory could not possibly be seen in the church without suffering and this is what Peter wants us to see this is what God wants us to see that his purposes for us in suffering are not just well let's just get you through this because there's no other way around it but there is a specific and particular purpose for his glory to be demonstrated in us through our suffering verse 21 for to this you have been called it's not just you're going to make it through this you've been called to this because christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Your suffering isn't just an incidental. The unjust treatment that you receive, whether it's as a servant or whether whatever your condition is, is not merely an unintended consequence of living in a fallen world until God can make other arrangements for you. That's the purpose of God. It's, it's your calling as a follower of Jesus. How could we see this more clearly than by looking at Christ himself? The ultimate case of unfair suffering. Of unjust treatment. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. Ever. He was reviled, but he never answered in kind. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He didn't retaliate. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. This is absolutely key for us enduring suffering, whatever our circumstance, knowing that God is going to set everything right. It's the only way you can look around at what's happening in society today and not only survive, but rejoice, thrive, is by knowing that, that God is the one who judges justly. And I think, I think that often we have too narrow a view of what constitutes suffering for the sake of Christ. As long as our response is in keeping with the attitude of Christ, with his response, we can include all suffering that comes our way. In this category, whether it's loss of loved ones, sickness, emotional pain, being misunderstood, evil spoken of, shattered dreams, whatever it is, it can be encompassed in this. The purpose of God in our lives, working all things together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Christ left us an example. All the things that he suffered, he entrusted to him who judges justly. He himself, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Not only did he leave us an example of suffering that we should follow in his steps, but his life, his death, his resurrection empower us to live like he did through suffering, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Not only does he empower us, but his, his suffering, his wounding provides us with the healing that we need when we do go through suffering and loss and when we suffer injustice. For you were all straying like sheep, wandering, aimless, and confused. Each one a Richard Dawkins in his own right. You know what Richard Dawkins said in, in his book, The Watchmaker? He said this. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless pitiless indifference. That was his take. And that's the take of anyone 
who does not see the God, who does not see God at the center of their suffering, who does not see the purpose of God at the center of whatever comes their way. You see nothing but blind, pitiless, pitiless indifference. And there's no way that you can walk through suffering and experience the glory that God wants you to, to experience through it unless God is at the center of that suffering. That was us, wandering like sheep. But we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. I love this phrase because it shows that we're not just un- unfortunate victims of, of what, what happens, whatever happens, whatever had to happen in God's so- sovereign plan. He's actually our shepherd. He's leading us. He's leading us intentionally into the way that we walk. He's the overseer of our souls. That means he's watching over your soul. And he's not just watching over what happens on the outside, but he's watching over your soul as you walk through suffering. As you experience circumstances that knock you sideways, he's watching over your soul. That's why we can confidently entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. I'm going to have to move more quickly here. Chapter 3, verse 1. And he moves to wives. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. He says in the same way, this doesn't mean that the relationship of a wife to her husband is the same as as a servant to his master. Rather, it means that this... This has the same foundation, the same premise. Uh, It's unfortunate that there's a a chapter division here because this is a continuation of the same discussion. Live as people who are free, but not not using your freedom as a cover for evil, but living as servants of God. Wives, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover for evil, but as servants of God. Be subject to your husbands because you are servants of God. And he says, even if some don't obey the word, he's expecting that there's going to be difficulties in your marriage. There's going to be situations where it's difficult to respect and honor and be subject to your husband. These instructions encompass the good relationships and the bad. Good wives, bad wives. Good husbands, bad wives. Bad husbands. Wow. Is that, um, what's that called? Implicit bias? <laughs> he's, he's setting you up to be prepared for whatever your situation is. Whether it's a good marriage or a bad marriage. Whether it's a good relationship with your master or a bad relationship with your master. You can live as a servant of God. Even if some don't obey the word. In the same way that the instructions for servants encompassed good and bad. The instructions for husbands and wives include the good and bad. Don't try to argue your husband. Don't try to coerce them into a person they're, they're supposed to be, but rather by your respectful and pure conduct. Even those who do not obey the word. It's just a given. There's some that are not going to be living the way they ought to live. They might be one. The objective is redemption. The the objective is for the glory of God to be displayed through your interactions with each other. I'm I'm guessing that some of you um, saw the post that Sarah Daigle put on Facebook this week. 
she was quoting an anonymous friend, so I'm not sure who said this, but I thought the gist of what he said was worth repeating here. He said this, Dr. Henry Cloud's boundaries have their place, but people start misapplying these principles, and it's comparable to deciding to get chemo and radiation treatments when you need a much less aggressive or invasive treatment. So many people are taking that teaching and saying things like, I've been telling my husband I need help around the house for years. He always apologizes and promises to help more, but it only lasts for a couple of weeks. Then he slips back into the usual. Sound like your husband? I can't handle these broken promises, continual apologies, yet no lasting change. If he loved me, he'd change and help me more around the house. I deserve better. I'm putting up boundaries, no contact, no connection. Until I see lasting change. I'm so hurt, maybe I should even separate from him until he sees what he has and changes for good. Then enters some man showing kindness, attention, money, etc. They are already disconnected and the grass looks greener to, to her. Boom, marriage done. It's like all the, you deserve to be happy and it's time for you, folks, grab that boundaries teaching and boxed it into a mental health box with pretty new wrapping paper on it and started selling their same old secular selfish-minded philosophy in a way that opens minds to a deceptive way of thinking in my opinion it's hell's new form of psychological warfare on believers some strong words there and i think it could certainly apply to other relationships we hear a lot about boundaries protecting yourself But there's something in here that that we need to get a hold of. It's not about our rights. And so many times marriage has become just a battleground of rights. What what makes me happy? Rather than as a platform that God intended, where the relationship of Christ and the church are mirrored through a husband and wife's relationship. So rather than fixating on the toxic people in your life, follow Christ. That's what Peter is saying. Even if you find yourself in a relationship that is toxic with, with people who treat you unjustly, you have the opportunity to follow in the steps of Christ. Verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. There's a clear contrast here between outward beauty, which gives an illusion of value, contrasted to true beauty, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, inward adornment of the hidden person of the heart, imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, before I got married, I was attracted to my wife partly because of her physical beauty, her outward beauty. I still remember um, looking at her eyes, and man, they had me like, wow. But there was something else that attracted me to her. It was an inward beauty, and that beauty is imperishable. It doesn't, it, it doesn't fade. It grows more beautiful with time. I, I still notice her outward beauty, but that's not the primary characteristic that attracts me to her. It's the beauty of the inner person. The gentle and quiet spirit, which Peter says is of great price. It's valuable in God's sight. It doesn't fade with time. It grows more beautiful with time. You can't put a price on that. All these instructions have God 
at the center. And they don't work without God at the center. They don't work unless you are living as a servant of Christ. This is so important for us to see this. God's eternal plan, his perspective, his supreme glory shown in our lives, his upside-down kingdom with, with values that are backward from the values of this world. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So holy women who hoped in God. There's a key phrase. They hoped in God. And he gives Sarah as an example. If you think of the life of Sarah, I wish we'd have time to explore this a little more, but we don't. She adorned herself by submission and obedience to her husband. She was a woman of extraordinary beauty. Um, it's, it's mentioned um, in, in, in Genesis. She even attracted the, king, the, the attention of kings on multiple occasions. She was so beautiful. Yet, her future physical beauty was eclipsed by an inward beauty that came from her hope in God. Hebrews 11 says that by faith she received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. She wasn't only past the age of childbearing, 90 years old when God promised, but she had been barren her entire life and yet she placed her hope in God. And think of the rest of her life, following her husband, going out from a land um, from, from their homeland to a place that they didn't even know where they were going. Yet she considered him faithful who had promised. She placed her hope in God and did not fear anything that is frightening. The, the Greek word there means alarming or terrifying. In fact, there's going to be things in your life that appear terrifying and alarming that you could be rightfully be afraid of. But I love it. The, the, the word here, you are her children, could also be translated, you are becoming her children. If you do not fear what is frightening, the patterns of fear that lead to control in your life can be broken as you put your hope in God and you do not fear. You don't come under the fear of what could rightfully be terrifying. You become Sarah's children as you live like that. I'm just going to skip a little section here and we go to verse seven. Husbands, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It says here again, in the same way, likewise, husbands, this doesn't mean that the relationship of a husband to his wife is the same as a relationship of the wife to her husband or a servant to their master. Rather, the premise is the same. The same thread continues. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as servants of God. Husbands, live as servants of God in the way you relate to your wives. This cuts directly across the grain of a man's natural tendency to live for himself, selfish without regard to his wife's honor and preferences to her makeup. Show honor to her as the weaker vessel in an understanding way. Study her. Find out what makes her blossom. Show honor to her. Recognize the differences in our makeup, not only physically, but emotionally. Um, we recently had a, a little pottery bowl, really beautiful pottery bowl, but it was, it was fragile, and it had some avocados in it, and it was sitting on the counter, and I had one of the kids up on the counter, and it got kicked off. 
and it hit the floor and shattered. And it was so sad because it was this beautiful piece of pottery, but it was fragile. It didn't need to be knocked off the counter three feet down onto the floor. It couldn't handle that. The reason that we treasure some things is because of their fragility. When you have a delicate vase, a delicate piece of pottery, you treat that piece of pottery with utmost respect. There are some, some mugs in our cupboard that when we use them for coffee, we, we hold them carefully and we cherish them. Partly because of their fragility. It doesn't make them less valuable. It makes them, in a way, more valuable. As heirs together of the grace of life. Two points here. One is husbands. You are recipients of grace. So live like, live as though you are recipients of grace. And recognize that your wife is also a recipient of grace. That makes us equal. Of equal value to God. Not equal in our roles. But of equal value in our distinct roles. Since you are heirs together of the grace of life, so that your prayers be not hindered. Your relationship with your wife, your interactions with other people, have direct implications for your relationship with God. And if you've been a husband for more than, for more than a couple of months, you've probably experienced times when your relationship breaks down here and you feel it in your relationship this way. Your relationship with your wife, when it breaks down, affects your relationship with God. And he says, because of that, because you're aware of that, protect, cherish, honor this relationship so that your relationship with God can remain open, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Your effectiveness in the kingdom of Christ will rise or fall with your faithfulness to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Finally, everyone, all of you, Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Again, the continuation of the discussion. Everyone, live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Galatians 5 says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve God one another. This is what true freedom leads to, is us laying down our own desires, our own rights, our own happiness to become servants of others. It's true freedom. And this is what it looks like. Unity of mind as the Spirit works in us. Sympathy. He's not just looking to your own interests, but looking to the interests of others. Brotherly love, loving each other like family, tender heart, a humble mind. That's what freedom looks like in the body of Christ. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Peter repeatedly emphasizes the possibility of us Finding ourselves in situations where relationships are hard. He's not just saying, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Everything's just going to be wonderful and easy. He immediately follows with, don't repay evil for evil. There's times when you're going to be a recipient of evil. You're going to be a recipient of 
somebody else's unjust actions. Don't repay it with evil. Don't exchange reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, so that you may obtain a blessing. It seems that he's echoing Romans again here, Romans 12, where it says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. For to this you were called. This is more than just putting up with necessary evil, but it's an, it's an important part of our calling as followers of Jesus. To bless when we're treated evil, when we're treated wrongfully. And he promised that if we would follow him, if we follow Jesus, we will suffer reviling. The apostles in the book of Acts, it says that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer reproach for the sake of Christ. You know why? Because they saw that this reproach leads to a blessing, that you may obtain a blessing. And I wonder if Peter was remembering the words of Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount where he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and speak evil of you. They utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. They had to just stick with him because he experienced a lot of that in his life. This is how you obtain a blessing. By living as servants of God in the middle of trials. And then he finishes with a quotation from Psalm 34. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I don't know if if Psalm 34 was maybe one of Peter's favorite psalms. He quotes it a couple of times, uh, references it a couple of times in this letter. But here he backs his instructions for good conduct from Psalm 34, 12 through 16. Do you want to be blessed in your life? Do you want a blessing? This is how. Turn away from evil. Do good. The gospel isn't just head knowledge. It's not just knowing about salvation. But it actually works itself out in our lives. It's practically applicable to our relationships, to whatever situation you find yourself in. Be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake. Submit to each other. Submit to your master, whether good or evil. Be subject to your husband. Let your adornment be the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Live with your wife in an understanding way. Show honor to her. Do all this. So that you can obtain a blessing. So that as you walk through suffering, following the example of Christ, you obtain his blessing. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and for how practical it is to our lives. We ask God that you would give us a right perspective So that when we encounter relationships that are difficult, marriages that are difficult, work relationships that are difficult, relationships with government that are difficult, that we would see you in all of it. And that we would live as people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Help us to put that into practice this week. Whatever that looks like for each one of us. 
Help us to follow your example because you suffered, leaving us an example that we should follow in your steps. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.